Hello, and welcome to the Claremont Bible Fellowship Bible Instruction Time. We now turn you over to our speaker for the day. I assume this morning that you realize that you were reading Scripture. Isn't that nice when you can read Scripture? I think one of the evidences of a good hymn is how much Scripture is contained therein. Interestingly enough, the very oldest book, the very oldest book, the book of Job, is where those words are found. Let's read them. Job 19. Job 19. Let's read what you just sang. Job 19, starting at verse number 23. Job 19. Here's what one of the ancients had to say about the matter. Job 19.23, oh, that my words were written, or that they were inscribed in a book. Aren't you glad they were? That they were engraved on a rock with an iron pen and lead forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh... I shall see God. Let's read those last three verses again. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God. Our speaker today hails from Wick, Scotland. He's a brother that's familiar to us, although it's been about five years, right? But it's good to have our brother Eric Basil with us, so we're going to turn the remainder of our Bible instruction time over to him. Brother Eric, please. Now, it is good to be back uh, with you in Claremont, and we trust that God will bless us. Uh, can we read some familiar verses uh, to most of us, I think, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the second half of the chapter, and I'll explain in a minute just what is on my mind. We heard earlier it's good to read the Word of God. We do believe Scripture to be the inspired Word of God. Sometimes it's easy to resort to cliche when we say that the most important thing we do is to read the Scripture. We believe that. We believe that God still speaks through His Word to the saints individually and to the saints collectively, and we look for the voice of God this morning. Now, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17. Paul writes, Now in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not that you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it, for there must also be heresies or sects among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. When you come together therefore into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in eating every one takes before other his own supper, and one is hungry and another is drunken. What have you not houses to eat and to drink in, or despise ye the church of God and shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. 
This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do you as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show or you do proclaim the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eats and drinks unworthily eats and drinks damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged, but when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. Wherefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, tarry one for another, and if any man hunger, let him eat at home, that ye come not together unto condemnation, and the rest will I set in order when I come. God will add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. You can't help but notice as you, perhaps like me, as you were driving along to the meeting this morning, you would have seen billboards at the side of the road and were thankful for advertising, he has risen. And there's an awareness in the world today that often in another Lord's Day, another Sunday, wouldn't be there that the Lord Jesus Christ has been raised. And we've enjoyed thinking about that this morning. But, of course, when we come to our New Testament, we find that the remembrance of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ was not a a once-a-year thing. It was not a a once-a-month thing. The remembrance and worship of the Lord Jesus Christ was a priority for his people. You remember the first mention we get of it in Acts chapter 22, uh, sorry, Acts 2, after the feast was instituted, it was clear that one of the features of the local assembly at Jerusalem was that they were faithful to the breaking of bread. And it was one of the privileges and responsibilities of those who were in fellowship that they remembered the Lord Jesus in the way that he had appointed them to. When you come across to Acts chapter 20, we find that it was something that was done on the first day of the week. You remember that Paul and his companions, they tarried it through us for a week so that on the Lord's Day they could break bread. Of course, they didn't break bread at 9.30 in the morning. Many of them were working all day. They were slaves. But the lesson is clear that it seems that it was a priority. As soon as they were able, at the start of the week, they got together to remember the Lord Jesus and to break bread. And you might wonder about, as a child I used to wonder, at the end of Acts 20, but Paul preaching to midnight after the breaking of bread. Well, I'll be finished before 12 p.m. And I'll not be preaching to midnight. But they must have started fairly late on. And you remember the young man was taken up alive, having fallen asleep. That all tells me this, though, that for the early church in the first century, remembrance and worship was a priority. Now, can I just address a question pointedly in my kind of blunt Scottish way as I apply it to my own heart. How much of a priority individually and collectively is the remembrance and worship of the Lord Jesus Christ? We often think about the fact that we have been saved to worship, to serve, but of course we heard reference this morning to that 
uh, verse in Hebrews 13 that we've actually been called primarily to be worshippers. We have the responsibility to offer with the fruit of the lips the sacrifice of praise, acknowledging his name. And as assemblies, we have responsibility to ensure that as well as going out as royal priests, to use the language of 1 Peter 2, to show forth the praises of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, that we are regularly engaged in the exercise of holy priests, offering up spiritual sacrifices to God by Jesus Christ. Now that's not just reserved to a Lord's Day morning, but of course a big part of that is that we have the opportunity at the start of the week to give God thanks for his Son. Now we've broken into a section that tells us there was a problem with the remembrance meeting at Corinth. And I just want to think about that with you for a moment or two. It was interesting to hear you're coming here on your Bible reading uh, relatively soon, so you'll have the opportunity to set in order anything I get incorrect just in a few weeks' time. You know, no doubt from your studies, that the problem in Corinth, uh, there was a number of symptoms of a problem. You could see division and party spirit. There was men backing men rather than the Lord. There was a, an emphasis amongst the saints of a material perspective, going in for living in luxury in the world, chapter 4, rather than being willing to live in rejection in the present dispensation. There was a problem in chapter 5. Uh, the symptom was that immorality was being tolerated among the people of God, and they were treating it as some kind of evidence of their uh, super spirituality that they were so tolerant of sin amongst them. There's a problem in chapter 6, you remember, that he even had one brother suing another brother and taking his civil uh, dispute with another brother before the earthly courts and so on. But what you find as you trace problems throughout the epistle is that they were all just symptoms of poor heart condition among the people of God. And no doubt you'll have seen at the beginning of the epistle as Paul says to them, the difficulty is that they were carnal. They were dominated by fleshly desires. That what motivated them in life was not the operation of the Spirit of God. As they gathered together, it was not the free agency of the Holy Spirit in their gatherings they saw. But instead, it was just the ugliness of the flesh being big. And it was me getting what I want out of the assembly. And it was me doing what I wanted and suited me. And so we come to chapter 11 and we find that even the remembrance and worship was affected by the condition of the people of God. Now I pause just to observe that that happens. My worship individually, our worship collectively, will not be what it ought to be. My appreciation of Christ will not be fresh and it will not be deep if my heart is not in the right place. If I am not being controlled by the Spirit of God in my direction, in my life, I cannot expect to have a grasp of him in worship. I want to think with you just under three headings uh, this morning about different features of what we read. I want to think firstly from verse 17 to verse 22 about the simplicity, about the simplicity of the remembrance feast. The simplicity. If we'd read the first half of the chapter, Paul, of course, was teaching them about 
headship. And uh, in particular, the outward evidence of headship being displayed in the local assembly. And so you get this teaching that the sisters uh, who were there had their heads covered and the men had their heads uncovered. And the reason Paul says that's important is because angels are watching and they are observing that this is a place where divine order is practiced. And he says that when you come into chapter 14, an outsider comes into this place, and this is a place where he bows down and says, God's in them of a truth. This is a place where whatever is happening in the world, we come in and we see that God's standard and God's order is observed. The problem was, what was happening practically in the second half of chapter 11 denied the doctrine of the first half of the chapter. Because the whole point of headship being practiced in the way it was taught in the first half of the chapter was that uh, the sisters' heads were covered to, to demonstrate, to symbolize the fact that this was a place where there was no glory for man and there was no glory for the flesh. And the reason the men's heads were uncovered was to display the fact that this was a place, this was a company where the glory of Christ was everything. And yet, despite having this teaching, actually, we come to the second half of chapter 11, and we find the problem was the flesh was having all the glory. And people were more interested in projecting themselves than projecting the glory of Christ. Now, can I ask you, acknowledging for a moment the importance of the doctrine that's taught in the first half of the chapter, but also acknowledging the fact you can have the doctrine, but deny the doctrine by what we do. Is Christ preeminent amongst us in our gatherings? What place does his glory have in our list of priorities? You see, I judge from these verses, and we don't have time for a close text exposition this morning. What was happening was that people were using, particularly the time of fellowship around the breaking of bread, to show off their material wealth. And in fact, it had got so bad in Corinth that there were those who had less materially and they were embarrassed by the embarrassment of riches that the rich were bringing and they were effectively showing off what they had and others didn't have and actually what ought to have been a simple feast. Remembering the Lord Jesus Christ in rejection, Paul is teaching, is nothing about the fancy trappings the world can offer, but just simply gathering with one purpose in view, that he would be central and that he would be glorified. And instead of that, what you have is this. The men and women come and they want to be the center of attention rather than Christ being the center of attention. When God saved me, he neither removed the flesh nor did he improve the flesh. And he, he, the same is true in your case. And in all of us, although positionally, that is God looking at us judicially, the old man has been destroyed at the cross, I still have the natural capacity to sin. And if the Holy Spirit of God that abides in me is not in control, that flesh will run rampant if I allow it to. 
and assemblies are destroyed, an effective testimony is destroyed when individual believers do not get in control of their own flesh. And that was the problem at Corinth. Because instead of the Lord's things taking priority at the breaking of bread, the saints were coming with a motive that they wanted to be seen and their power and influence and status was to be projected. It was to be simple. But then for a few moments, I want to think from verse 23 uh, down to verse 26 with you. That the breaking of bread was not only to be simple, but it was to be scriptural. And uh, we, we live in a day when across Christendom there will be people that say, why would you just gather simply with loaf and cup without fanfare and remember the Lord Jesus? Well, the answer to that is not to say, button up our jacket, look at us, we've got it right. That's not the answer. The answer is to examine ourselves and to say, all we can do is Remember him in the way that he asked us to do. And the point about this, I want to just encourage our hearts this morning. I want to go back to that upper room and to remind ourselves that anything we are and anything we have, we have by grace this morning. In that bread that he took and he gave thanks, this is my body which is given for you. The, fel- the one body fellowship that we've been brought into, you'll come on to this in chapter 12 of the epistle, you will notice too. But the one body fellowship we have been brought into in Christ is all based on the giving of his body, on his sacrifice. At Calvary, not a bone of him was broken. He answered prophecy in that regard. But he knew the breakings of the cross. He gave his own body. He took a body in order that he could give himself at the cross. His body was used uniquely in the service of God. A body that knew no defilement, a body that knew no corruption. Remarkable to think a body that Mary held, that men touched. Remarkable to think a body that men buffeted and hit, that men spat upon. And yet he took that body in order that he would give it. And in the upper room, they didn't understand it. We do not understand it fully. He took bread. He gave thanks for it. The bread was broken and they took it. And there was a visible, tangible reminder of the giving of his body for them. When we remember the Lord Jesus, the reference was made this morning to the emblems. They are just emblems, just bread and just wine. But they speak to us powerfully of what he did for us. And each Lord's Day morning, we have the privilege of looking back to Calvary. But then, 
he not only took bread, but likely he took a decanter and he poured into the cup and the cup was circulated. This cup is a new covenant in my blood. And we're learning, if in the bread we learn that fellowship and the blessings that are bestowed upon us in Christ came through a given body, we're learning in the cup The cost of our redemption was his own life's blood. He gave himself for us. It's interesting in the scriptures when you read about the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. um, I suppose there's two extremes we can go to. It's not that the blood is mystical in some way. In fact, we, we need to be careful. Scripture, when it speaks about the blood, it will always speak about the blood of Christ or the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's always careful in the way that it speaks about his blood. Blood of the Lord Jesus, for example, we never read of it being uh, spilt. We read of it being shed. We read about it being sprinkled in the Hebrew epistle. But it is... The other extreme is that people avoid speaking about the blood because it makes men and women uncomfortable. But the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ is central to our redemption because it is the token of the life given. So when we read about him shedding his blood, we are learning about the fact that he gave everything to redeem a people for himself. That the price of ransom, that the price of to deliver us from the slave market of sin was his own life's blood. And in particular, in 1 Corinthians 11, we learn that the new covenant, which of course we know is made with the nation, but we come into the blessings of it, required blood. The blood ratified in Scripture A covenant. And so the new covenant is ratified with blood. You remember later on in the Hebrew epistle, the the writer explains that a will, a last testament, it's all very well having it, but it has no effect until the testator who makes it is dead. And so the blood shed is the evidence that the life has been given. And he, I was going to say he invited, he commanded his own in the same way as he had enacted to remember him in doing the same thing. And notice this, please. That as often as they kept the feast, they proclaimed the Lord's death until he came. So we look back when we take the emblems. The world looks back on Easter Friday. The world even looks back on Easter Sunday, on Resurrection Day. They see it, if they believe it at all, as some kind of historical event. But we see that not only was this historically factual. This all happened. He died. He was buried. He rose again the third day. But we see the future significance of it. That there is coming a day when we will not need to remember him with emblems. This may well be the last Lord's Day morning that we gather with emblems. Because there will be a last Lord's Day morning. I know sometimes the way we act, We profess to believe it with our lips and then our lives deny it. But we affirm it from the word of God this morning. That there will come a day that for the last time, collectively, the church uses emblems. And they'll never do it again.
Because before the next Lord's Day morning comes, he will shout from heaven. When we see him, John says, we shall be like him. Or we shall see him as he is. And if you're like me, the days of regrets over failure to concentrate in the breaking of bread. And failure just to appreciate the greatness of Christ. And failure to discern just how great his suffering was. They'll all be banished forever. Beloved saint, you will be satisfied when you awake with his likeness. The breaking of bread is to be simple. It's to be scriptural. But here's my burden this morning, just for the last few moments. Solemn verses I've been thinking about is to be sincere. Is to be sincere. You know there was all sorts of problems at Corinth. But another sign of that was just as they gathered around the table, just here and there, there was an empty seat. Some of them were sick at home. Some of them had been taken to glory. We must never, when disaster befalls a saint, try to attribute reason to discipline. Because that is something that is beyond any of us to know. And very often God's choicest people are given suffering as a grace. And they suffer not because of sin. But there is an occasion when God does act judicially and he disciplines his people according to 1 Corinthians 11. And only an individual saint can, before the Lord, judge honestly whether we are being chastened, we are being disciplined, whether we are suffering for righteousness' sake, or what the reason for suffering is. But at Corinth, the Holy Spirit tells us, behavior at the breaking of bread was a particular reason that God was acting judicially to discipline his people. You say, what was the problem? Well, the problem is this. They were treating the remembrance of the Lord Jesus with contempt by the carry-on, by the self-aggrandizement that was going on, that when he ought to have been central and he ought to have been everything, they were treating him and his death unworthily because although they professed remembrance of him by taking the emblems, all they were really interested in was how big they could be. I will leave you to apply that to yourself. Perhaps we're not in the same position where we're coming to the breaking of bread to show off to each other. But if you're like me, there will be times when we have to confess, when we leave the breaking of bread, we were not in the spiritual condition we ought to have been when we came to remember him. Too many times in my life when I've rolled out of bed and arrived at the meeting without proper preparation to consider him. Those of us who do any kind of preaching, we would never think of turning up without preparation. If you take a Sunday school class, you don't turn up without preparing for it. Yet too often we turn up the breaking of bread if you're like me. And we've not really prepared our hearts and our thoughts to think about him. And you just, I know that's not directly the interpretation here, but I'm just applying it. This idea of are we 
keeping the feast worthily or unworthily. Mind you, Paul is quite clear. The answer to this, if I'm not in the right condition, the answer isn't that I just leave the saints and sit at home. One of the interesting things in the New Testament, contrary to what uh, individualistic Christendom tells us outside sometimes, is that the Scripture is quite clear. It is important to come to assembly gatherings. It's not a kind of pick or choose. If you're in an assembly, I'll go if I feel like it, or I might go, or I'll sometimes go. Hebrews 10 teaches me that it's actually a sin to not be at the assembly gatherings, if I can possibly help it. Now, there's obviously times, illness, family crisis, whatever it is, it prevents us. But if I can be there, I ought to be there. And interestingly, Paul does not say, if you're in the wrong condition, just stay at home. He says, let a man examine himself, and so let him eat. The answer is not to sit at home, bemoaning our lack of spirituality. The answer is that we get before God. We confess our weakness and our sin. And then we have the privilege and joy of gathering together to remember him. When I was a boy, the old brethren used to tell us in Scotland about keeping short accounts with God. What they meant was this. You didn't allow days to turn into weeks, to turn into months of sin in the life without it being dealt with. Because the whole lesson here at the end of chapter 11 is that if we judge ourselves, God doesn't need to judge us in the way that is talked about here. And too often, if you're like me, we're harder on others than we are on ourselves. We're like that man in the parable the Lord Jesus told about. We're experts at seeing the speck the splinter in someone else's eye when we have a whole plank of wood in our own eye that we can't see. And so Paul was teaching these saints at Corinth to get the flesh in check, to use Colossian language, to mortify the flesh, to put it in the place of death, to treat it as if it could not respond to temptation. And in doing so, in doing so, Get in a right condition before God so that the keeping of the feast, which was a priority, was not only simple and scriptural, but it was sincere. Now we trust this morning that these remarks are some help to us as we seek again to continue to glorify our Lord Jesus Christ. On this morning when we remember resurrection, we seek his interests to be promoted in the week ahead. Shall we pray? Father, we are thankful for thy word and we confess our weakness in expositing it and teaching it, but we thank thee for the Spirit of God and we pray that anything that was not of thyself would be taken away and we pray that the Spirit would take it up in power so that it would be a help to all our hearts, so that the people of God would be encouraged so that there would be a deepening sincerity in the way that we remember the Lord Jesus, that the flesh would be in control, that the flesh would be in check. We pray for the assembly here. We thank thee for its testimony. We pray that they would bless each member. We remember those that are ill particularly, and we pray that where they are, they would know the blessing of the Lord. We give thee our grateful thanks now for him. We remember that 
Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried. And he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. We thank thee he lives in the power of an endless life. We thank thee he will return soon. We long that thou would help us to proclaim him to a world outside in the week that lies ahead. For him we give thanks now in his name. Amen. <laughs>